And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Attorney General Josh Shapiro of Pennsylvania made big news last year with the release of a stunning report about the abuse of children within the church in the state of Pennsylvania. It's a report that really spurred a global uh, discussion or certainly added to it, but it was also just the latest chapter in what Pennsylvanians already know to be a really promising career in politics and government. General Shapiro came to the Institute of Politics today to speak about the issue of abuse in the church and the cover-up of it. And after that program, I sat down with him to talk about that, but also about his own journey, uh, some other issues that he's working on, and the politics of our moment. Josh Shapiro, great to see you here at the Institute of Politics and at at this table. Great to be with you. We have a lot to talk about that's current and involving your work as Attorney General. You're you're here in part speaking about your investigation into uh, the abuse of children in the church and the cover-up of it. And I want to talk to you about that, but I want to talk to you a little bit about your your own journey before we uh, before we get to that. So, uh, tell me about the the Shapiros. When did I assume they didn't come over on the Mayflower? No, the, the, the Shapiros uh, came over. They, they fled um, communism and they fled persecution in a town, many of them in a town of communist Podolsk, which right now uh, is in the country of Georgia, was in the Soviet Union, came to Philadelphia. Um, where When? Uh, they came over in the late 1800s. Uh-huh. Uh, my parents uh, grew up in Philadelphia. Typical Philly family. Mom went to Girls High. Dad went to Central, and um, met uh, after you know in the college time and got together. And thank God they did. And they they have three great children. Well, at least I think my siblings are great. I don't know. <laughs> that's still up for debate. Uh, and you know we're all living still largely uh, in that area. But they are um, they're so critically important to me. And and they you know they're wonderful people. Mom was a Philly public school teacher. Dad was the, and still is the pediatrician uh, to nearly everybody in our community, and everybody knows. Could be helpful when you're running for office. Let me tell you, the first time I was running for office for state representative in 2004, knocking on doors, more people wanted to talk to me about my dad and how he took care of their kids than cared at all about the policy positions I was there to talk about. But he literally delivered the vote. Literally delivered the vote. The uh, you know Rahm Emanuel. his father is a pediatrician yeah. and treated a lot of people on the south, on the northwest side of Chicago and but it was sort of alien political turf or new political turf for Ram when he ran for Congress in 2002 it turned out to be like a huge advantage you know because there were like tens of thousands of people you know who he who, you know or at least it seemed like it who his father had touched over it's amazing. You know, David, I can remember going with my dad to a clinic where he was taking care of poor, underserved kids in kind of suburban Philadelphia and in, in the Philadelphia area. And you know, I later learned in life, he wasn't really getting paid for that. That really wasn't his way of making a living, but that was his way of giving back, of caring for those who were less fortunate. And then to meet those folks later in life when I was actually running for office and trying to help them, you know, in my way of helping was pretty extraordinary. You know, uh, another element of his work was that he would come across kids who were uh, abused. Yeah. And um, it struck me when I was reading this that that had to be uh, in your head when you started diving into this issue of abuse of children um, by priests? One of the reasons I got involved in government, and I had somewhat of a circuitous route to get there. We'll, but, get, we'll get to that circuitous yeah, route. But one of the reasons I got involved was because I remember vividly watching my dad 
go and testify for the prosecution in child abuse cases uh, in the community where, where we grew up. I remember my dad having a hand in starting the first child advocacy center um, for abused children in our community. Those things affected me in really extraordinary ways. Actually made me want to be a pediatrician like my dad until organic chemistry came. But anyway, <laughs> um, those are memories I have that I drew upon that as we were going through this clergy abuse effort. You, uh, faith is obviously important uh, in your family. Um, you went to, to uh, Jewish schools through, throughout. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, but tell me what that has meant also in terms of the things that you have done with your life. How, does it, how did it an- animate your, your life as a kid? How does it animate your life now? My faith is critically important to me, I think, really for two reasons. Number one, um, together with my wife and our four kids, it grounds me, and it constantly reminds me about what's real and what matters in life and your requirement to serve others. And second, you know, there's so many wonderful passages you can pull from any religious text, but for me, the one I not only think about every day, but I talk about a lot in uh, public speeches and what have you is... um, the scripture teaches us no one is required to complete the task, but neither are we free to refrain from it. And that, to me, is the essence of my faith, which is a requirement to do for others. Maybe not solve the ultimate problem, but to advance the ball, to move things forward, to help others. I draw on my faith. I speak very openly about my faith, um, even in communities where being Jewish may not be something that that folks typically recognize or understand. Uh, but it is who I am. And so together with my family, my faith really grounds me and helps keep me focused on what matters. Are you uh, concerned? There's been a, a precipitous increase in anti-Semitic acts, including the horrendous shooting in Pennsylvania uh, late last year. Um, why? There's a number of reasons for that. I think The president bears some responsibility, uh, not only through the direct words that he uses, but perhaps more importantly, he allows his words to be misappropriated by others who would want to do harm to someone just based upon what they look like, who they pray to, where they come from, who they love. That is incredibly dangerous when the leader of your country uh, is allowing those words to be used that way. You combine that with... um, You know, communities being more divided than ever before, not understanding one another, not understanding what it means to walk in one's shoes or sit in their seat. And, you know, we have a a situation that is really toxic. It's interesting, David, you know, as a prosecutor, I've seen a dramatic increase in the number of reported hate crimes and hate incidents in Pennsylvania. We brought on the first ever chief deputy attorney general for civil rights just to focus on that kind of work. And in fact, I had an opportunity with my fellow attorneys general uh, to be in the White House and to talk with the president. And we could raise any issue we wanted. This was the issue I raised about hate speech. And I often say hate speech begets hate crimes. And I talked about or I asked him about how we can get our state and federal law enforcement partners to work more closely together on dealing with these issues. And the president's response was sort of stunning. He talked about how, you know, you got to be careful because sometimes the reverse can be true. And, you know, kind of his, uh, you know, alluding to the fact that there's always another side to these things. Which we saw after Charlottesville. Which we saw after Charlottesville. Now, does this translate into um, lack of cooperation on the part of the Justice Department? Or do you think the Justice Department is uh, pursuing hate crimes in a serious way? I could tell you that the three U.S. attorneys uh, and the FBI and the other authorities in Pennsylvania that I deal with um, are great partners, and we work very, very closely with them. Um, I think Rod Rosenstein is is a good man who cares deeply about these issues, and, and I leaving. hope that and and leaving. But I hope that when uh, uh, General Barr, or soon to be Attorney General Barr, comes in office, he'll prioritize this, notwithstanding some of the destructive comments that the President of the United States has made. You know, you mentioned Barr. I, I should ask your opinion on this, and I don't know if you've taken a look at it. But there's obviously been some consternation about the letter that he wrote questioning some of the underpinnings of the Mueller investigation and whether that should disqualify him as a, as a candidate for attorney general. And I, I don't I was wondering if you had 
looked at that at all? Well, look, he wouldn't be my pick. Uh, and, and not just for ideological reasons, but I think when you make statements like that, um, particularly in these times, uh, that is that should be cause for concern for any chief executive who's making a nomination and for any senator who has to vote on it. The reality is um, our law enforcement needs to be above reproach and our rule of law in this country when it is viewed by people on the left and the right as being something that is sacrosanct and strong. We are all safer for it. When people think law enforcement or our intelligence services or the military is becoming politicized, we are all less safe. Uh, and no matter who the occupant of the White House is, whether they're you know Republican, Democrat, left, right, we are all less safe when the rule of law is undermined. And so I think having someone like that who has espoused those views uh, being propped up by the president and presumably confirmed by the Senate – uh, does a disservice to the rule of law, and it causes me concern. That being said, uh, if he's confirmed as the attorney general, I'll work hard uh, with the Department of Justice, as I did under General Sessions, who, believe it or not, had a good working relationship with. And I think it's important that uh, the Justice Department get away from the way it's been politicized and, and be more independent, and I'm hoping Barr can do that. How much latitude do you think um – Senators should give a president on appointments like this. If you were sitting there, would you vote for the guy? I would not vote for Barr, period. I think typically presidents should enjoy uh, great deference on their nominees. I, I often say, look, elections have consequences. And so if if you don't like the outcome of the election, you're not going to like maybe the ideological views espoused by a nominee for a particular cabinet position. That's not really what we should be looking at. We should be looking at their qualifications, their ability to do the job. So I'm less focused on the views Barr has on, on certain issues where I would likely disagree with him, and more focused on can he do the job? Can he be above reproach? Can he demonstrate a consistent respect for the rule of law and have others have confidence in the rule of law under his leadership? And it strikes me that, you know, the way he opined on the Mueller investigation does a great disservice to his nomination. Let me go back to your uh, <clears throat> to your childhood, uh, because one issue that you got involved in as a kid was the issue of Soviet Jewry, yeah. which was you really did your research, David. <laughs> well, someone did. I'm the beneficiary of it. Um, and uh, and you, I, I was interested that you set up this pen pal program yeah. with uh, with young people in uh, in uh, in the Soviet Union, and uh, particularly with a young man named Avi Goldstein. Right. And tell me about that. And uh, and apparently he, he came to your bar mitzvah or he was... Yeah, it was, it was really extraordinary. I mean, look, this is part of growing up in a home where your mom's a school teacher, your dad's a, a pediatrician. They, you know, your faith is central to who you are. They teach you about giving back to your community. And I just remember being about 11 years old and learning about these kids who were my age, Jewish kids living in the former Soviet Union who weren't able to now in my world these were important things because it was play, the, it was the Soviet Union at the time it was the Soviet yeah. Union at the time right um you know they couldn't play little league they couldn't you know go to their synagogue they couldn't you know eat pizza when they wanted they didn't have the same freedoms that i had as a typical 11 year old and that really upset me and it made me want to do something about it. And back then, we didn't have email. We wrote letters. And so I organized kids. Those were the days. Yeah, all over the United States, into Canada, a little bit in Europe, to write you know, thousands of letters to these, what were called then refusing, so yes. Jewish refusing kids. And I got my first opportunity to be a lobbyist, right? Not a registered one. I want to be, I want to be clear, but to go and, and lobby. And not a paid one. And not a paid one, but to go as 11, 12-year-old kid with other kids to the United States Senate to lobby giants like Senator Joe Biden. And I remember Senator Arlen Specter and remember, you know, Senator Mitchell and Dole and got to talk to them about these kids that were trapped in the Soviet Union. And did you hear, and you heard back from these kids? We did. We Every so often we would get letters back and sometimes our parents or other parents would be able to go visit and sneak letters back. And so there was a little bit of, of that relationship. And these kids describe the hardships they, they were did. suffering? They described the hardships. They described a life that seemed inconceivable to me that lacked freedom. Um, you know, I grew up in the United States of America which, with these mm -hmm. incredible freedoms. I couldn't imagine what it was like to live that way. And um, 
we lobbied, we advocated, you know, we, we went on TV and the radio and talked about these kids. And we were actually eventually with the help of elected officials and other activists able to get this Avi Goldstein, a 12 and a half year old boy and his family freed from the Soviet Union just a couple days before I was to have my bar mitzvah at 13 years old in suburban Philadelphia. And we were able to raise enough money to get him to come and stand next to me and have this bar mitzvah together. It was, it was extraordinary. Have you kept in touch with him? A little bit over the years. And mm-hmm. um, he's doing well, married, family. Um, and I'm just happy for him and all of the other kids who eventually were were released and are now living lives in the United States, Israel, and, and other places. That was my first opportunity to be an advocate and to see the power of, of engaging in your community, engaging in the world around you, and having something meaningful happen as a result of it. You went to the University of Rochester. As you pointed out, you went there thinking you were going to be a doctor. Yeah. And then came face-to-face with the requirements of becoming one. Pre-med, right. Yeah. And uh, and But you didn't immediately go to law school when you got out of uh, when no, you got out of. Uh, College. I didn't. I'll, I'll share a quick story with you. Um, in fact, I was invited back to be a commencement speaker at the University of Rochester, my alma mater, and I shared this story then. My freshman year, I went there to be a doctor, like my dad, who had such a big impact on my life, to play basketball, believe it or not. You know, a short Jewish guy like me could actually play basketball. Um, and, I'm taking uh, your word for it. <laughs> and, and that's what I was going to do. And on one day, my freshman year of college... Uh, I showed up to my one of my pre-med classes to learn that I had flunked the class, even though I had worked really hard. The professor said, look, it's clear you studied. I'm just not sure that your brain is wired that way. Was feeling incredibly depressed, but realizing, you know, that I could still be a, a basketball player and, you know, maybe maybe realized my dream of going to the NBA. But and that didn't happen. That either. afternoon, I got cut from the men's basketball team. <laughs> and that night, feeling it's incredibly... Like that, that old Buster Keaton movie where the brick, you know, he, he's lying in a in, a, in rubble, a building collapses, yeah. and he says, well, at least nothing else can happen to me. And then a brick falls and hits him on the head. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. I mean, it was... I couldn't believe it. That night, someone knocked on my door and said... Uh, hey, you should run for student government. I'm like, student government? Why would I ever want to do that? I had zero interest in it. It It's not what I was focused on. And he pointed out to me that I had literally nothing going on in my life and that I could could run unopposed (laughs) and I could win. So I ran, I won. And actually, like just a month or so after, I won't bore you with all the details, but I organized a student protest about some decisions that the university administration had made. And at the end of my freshman year of college, got elected student body president, and then from there studied political science and went right after college to Capitol Hill. I figured I'd go there for a year. I'd have the experience to maybe go to law school or something. And one year turned into nine years on the Hill. I was a Hill chief of staff and then went to Georgetown Law School at night. And that was really, uh, I think, what crystallized. While you were working on the Hill. While I was working on the Hill as as a chief of staff. And it was an incredible experience until one day um, after walking my boss to the floor of the Congress and kind of whispering in his ear what the bill was that we were going to be voting on that day. I turned around and took my Blackberry off my hip holster. Back then we had these big hip holsters and called my wife, uh, who I'd been with since the ninth grade. We had a little baby girl at the time. I said, it's time to go home. Let's go home to our community where we grew up. And a couple months later, went back home and joined a law firm in the city of Philadelphia. And a month or so after that, started running for the state house of representatives because I wanted my views to be out there. I wanted to meet people in my community and I wanted to help them. I thought that was the best. So you knew when you went back that you were likely going to run for office. I did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I felt that that was the most powerful way I could do what my parents taught me, what my faith taught me, which was to help others, to do more for others and to try and repair the world a bit. And I started running for the state house in a district that was overwhelmingly Republican. And David, I'll never forget this. I went to my first event in the community and they let my opponent give a speech and they wouldn't let me speak. Right. And I came home that night. Right. It didn't seem fair. I said to my wife, I said, they wouldn't let me speak. This is crazy. I'm running for office against them. And she said, well, you better go figure out a better way to get people to listen to you. She's very blunt with me, very tough with me. And so the next day I put on a pair of, you know, these sort of comfortable running shoes and personally knocked on 18,000 doors in my district. You started this race 40 points behind. Yeah. 
I still have that poll in my office. I was losing 65-21 on Labor Day, David, Labor Day. Um, but, you know, we, we persevered and worked hard. And, and the most important thing I think I did in that race was just listen to people. And I learned a lot from showing up in their living rooms and hearing their stories. I must say, though, that either you had a really lousy pollster or you were a really good candidate. I, I don't know what to Jeff conclude. Pollock would resent being oh, called a Jeff lousy Pollock. Pollster, okay, but... so you had a good pollster. All right, his, his numbers, numbers at are the good. End were right. His numbers are good. His numbers are good. So um, the, on this issue of of uh, campaigning uh, that way yeah. and listening, you and I were having a discussion before we started uh, recording this conversation uh, about. Um, the Democratic Party mm-hmm. and about what happened in 2016. And I, w- I don't want to lose the thread of your biography, and we'll go through some of the intermediate okay. steps that led you to be a candidate for attorney general of Pennsylvania. But uh, you you won while Hillary Clinton lost. Right. And you won in some of these rural areas where uh, you didn't win, but you did better than she in some of these rural areas. Um Talk about how this notion of listening and showing up uh, profited you, because I think we have another presidential race coming up, mm-hmm. and you know, frankly, the Democratic Party hasn't sent a very good vibe to uh, voters in these small towns and rural yeah. areas. I, I think it is so important to just listen, and when you listen, you show people respect. And what I learned that in that experience, knocking on those 18,000 doors, running for state rep, and then, of course, running for attorney general uh, in 2016 when Trump carried our state, is that showing up and listening matters uh, and showing respect matters and putting yourself in their shoes and trying to understand the challenges people face matters. I was shocked at, at you know, I'd have these long days on the campaign trail listening to people, talking to them, going to their VFWs, listening to them in their communities. And then, you know, you, you turn on late at night, the, the cable news, and the focus is all on the left-right divide and slicing and dicing the, the, the population in, in ways that are focused on the sort of like minute policy differences that never came up in the discussions I was having with people. And I think too oftentimes we as a party focus on, you know, the left, right, you know, progressive, liberal, whatever the label is that you want to put on it dynamic as opposed to getting back to basics, which is showing up and listening and trying to understand where people are coming from. And uh, I'll never forget the story. I came out of a a rally in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, which is up in northeastern part of our state, you know hardworking, great community, but a community that's lost a lot of its economy over the years. And um, the message at this big rally from um, you know Joe Biden on behalf of Hillary Clinton, our Senate candidate, was about equal pay for equal work. And I talked about the opioid crisis because that was something that was huge in that area. And I'm leaving the event, and these two guys who were there in front of me, and they said, oh, that Shapiro guy seems all right. I'll vote for him. And all right is great. I'll take all right. But then they said, but I'm not voting for Clinton because of that whole equal pay for equal work thing. And they used a couple expletives. And then they said, you know, if they pass that equal pay for equal work bill, what's going to happen is my taxes are going to go up and some woman's going to get a job instead of me. Now, David, I was ready to jump on those guys and strangle them and say, okay, first off, Equal pay for equal work is a great thing. Second, you're completely wrong on the policy. And third, you're wrong about the effects of that policy. But instead of jumping all over them and telling them how wrong they were, I tried to put myself in their shoes and understand the pain they were feeling because one of those guys hadn't had a job in 10 years. And they felt that the message from our party was not one that they could understand or relate to. And I think too oftentimes we're getting caught up in these policy discussions and getting mad at folks when they don't agree with us on policy instead of understanding where they sit and how they interpret that. So I'm no less a supporter of equal pay for equal work than I was the day before that rally. But I can understand where people are coming from, even if their logic is flawed, and try and tailor the the work we do to helping them. You don't have to abandon your principles, but you do have to listen and you have to appreciate where they're coming from. There is a pretty robust debate within the Democratic Party about whether the road to winning a national election lies in 
doing what you're discussing uh, or uh, maximizing sort of what they would call base vote. Right. So getting a big vote out in the cities and metropolitan areas, getting young people more energized and so on. Um, but it doesn't seem like that's the either-or proposition. It, it shouldn't be. And look, in the city of Philadelphia, which is our biggest urban demogra- uh, democratic base in, the, in uh, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, Josh Shapiro, we all got upwards of 80% of the vote in the city of Philadelphia. I mean, we, we are getting close to maximizing our vote there. You can't just go there and ignore the rest of the state. You've got to be able to talk to people in Fishtown, which is in Philadelphia, and Johnstown, which is in southwestern Pennsylvania, a community that's ravaged by opioids and struggling economically. And I think there's a way to do that. And the most important thing we have to do is go and understand the community and listen to them and let them know we care. They don't expect us to solve every problem that they have, but they do expect us to listen and to care about the challenges that they face. You uh, you went to the... Uh you went to the Pennsylvania Assembly, and pretty quickly you were enmeshed in trying to mediate a a leadership uh, a leadership battle there that actually got some national attention. But talk about that. At the end of the election of two thousand and six, so it was my first reelection to the state house. I was a one term member. The Democrats enjoyed a one-seat advantage in the state house, 102 to 101. Yet, right before the vote for Speaker, which comes from the floor of the House, you need a majority of the 203, you need 102 votes, a few of the Democrats said they would not support the Democrat who had been nominated by our caucus to serve as Speaker. Um, I learned this on New Year's Eve day. The vote was to take place two days later. And I was really concerned about it, told my wife about it, who again sort of kicked me in the butt the way she always does in a very direct way. And she said, well, go do something about it. I said, well, what am I supposed to do about it? I'm basically a freshman lawmaker. How am I supposed to make this happen? She goes, yeah, I don't Your know. wife is turning up as the hero of the she story. Is, she is, is my like hero. Let me tell you. She said, well, do something about it. Well, that night, um, because of how... Uh, you know, exciting we are. I went to pick up Chinese food so we could hang out, you know, on New Year's Eve uh, at home. And on my way to get Chinese food, I had a thought, you know, what if the Democrats could support a moderate Republican? There were a few of them back in the day in the state house. Uh, because bring- the, the, the speaker at the time, who uh, the previous session, was a Republican and objectionable to Republican at the time, quite objectionable to both Democrats and Republicans, actually, in many ways. But I had this idea, maybe we get this moderate Republican, all the Democrats could vote for for him, and a few Republicans could too, and we could have the first ever bipartisan speaker, and the Democrats could preserve their majority as chairman of all the committees and and manage the, the flow of bills in the House. So we could preserve what the voters wanted, which was for Democrats to set the agenda. And it was a secretive effort over the next 48 hours. Um, much of which, uh, you know, at the at the last possible second, was concocted in the basement of the governor's residence when Ed Rendell was um, was our governor, and we went to the floor of the House of Representatives where I knew, uh, and a handful of other people knew what was about to happen, and for the first time ever in Pennsylvania. Um, the majority party voted for a, a minority member to be speaker, and we had a bipartisan speakership, a one-seat difference in that House. And I think we accomplished more in that session in terms of reform and policies passing than uh, has been accomplished in modern history there. you um, I, I'm wondering, as I hear you tell this story, who approached this guy, Bill DeWeese, who wanted to be the speaker, the Democrat, to inform him of this arrangement. I did. Uh, and I think they all were sort of shocked that this freshman lawmaker was yeah. was putting this together. And I think in the beginning... In, the, in, the, in, in French, I think they call it chutzpah. Yeah, there was a little bit of chutzpah there. Yeah. But, but you know what? I, I just felt that we could do better. And I felt that, you know, maybe this was an opportunity for bipartisanship to take hold in Harrisburg and, and where we could get things done. And by the way, bipartisanship took hold. But we didn't have to abandon our values. I didn't have to abandon being a progressive Democrat and getting things done that we wanted to get done. Uh, and, you know, I'm really proud of what we accomplished there. And I think it can be a model for other state legislatures around the country. 
you didn't stay in the legislature. You decided to run for Montgomery County Commissioner. Um, first of all, explain why that was a superior job in in your view. Well, it's basically Montgomery being, County being a suburb yeah, of Philadelphia. Like being a, the mayor of our county. It's a big county, over 800,000 people. And the reason I left to do that was because I had gotten somewhat you know, disheartened by the legislative process. I felt that it was slow. Um, I think as a lawmaker, you're an incrementalist. Um, you espouse views and, you know, you're trying to move the needle a little bit. I wanted to be an executive. I actually questioned for a period of time, you know, do I even want to be in public service? And and I ultimately decided I did want to be in public service and I do want to be in public service for a good part of my life, but I wanted to be an executive and I thought this was an opportunity to be an executive and I became the first Democrat to lead Montgomery County in 150 years, a county that Ronald Reagan famously said was one of the three most important Republican counties in the country. You had to... Um you had to uh, take on your old boss, uh, at least in the maneuvering for that job, uh, Congressman Huffle, or former Congressman, who had left to run, I guess, for the Senate, right. and now was wanted to stage a a, 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 a rebirth of his political career here. Um, tell me about that decision. To it was very hard, and I I made it clear that I could never run against him, and I said, look, I. I you know, if you're running, I won't challenge you. But if you're not running, I want to do this. And ultimately, uh, he decided to stand down and not run. And it gave me a great opportunity to step up and, and lead our county. And again, bring it into Democratic hands for the first time in 150 years. He wasn't a fan of yours after that. He said at one point, you don't want to turn your back on him. Loyalty is not his strong suit. Um, that must have wounded you. It hurt. Uh, it hurt because it's a guy that I cared a lot about and frankly, someone who gave me opportunities and someone who I helped. You were his chief of along staff. Along the way, I was his chief of staff, but I made it clear I'd never run against him. Uh, he ultimately stood down and, and I had that opportunity. I would point out, David- But that others wanted you and not him is yeah, what happened. They they did. And, and I think he came to that realization that, that you know, realpolitik as well. Um, I'm not sure anyone else uh, subscribes to that view, and so we'll leave it at that. I um, I know that you were recruited for uh, to try and run for the U.S. Senate. Yeah, a lot of interest in Washington in getting you uh, to do that. Which remind me, which uh, cycle that was? That was 2016. The same cycle I ran then for, for attorney, attorney general. general. Why did you decide to pass on that? Well, you know, it comes back to the hero in the story, my wife. After four weeks of back and forth. With, Why don't we just get her here, okay? <laughs> she should be on the pod. She should be on the pod. Her name is? Her name is Lori. Uh, you know, after four weeks of back and forth with Chuck Schumer, who is one of the, the, the most convincing guys you'll ever meet, um, I came home on a Thursday night on the train from Washington, D.C., uh, excited to tell my wife that I was going to run for the U.S. Senate. And, uh, you know, we have younger kids and at the time, you know, even younger kids, four of them. And, you know, this was not a decision that could be made lightly given our family dynamics. And I told Schumer that I was going to talk to my wife that night and then call him back the next morning uh, to just give him the, the, the okay sign. Lori asked me a simple question that night. She said, why do you want to do that job? And I said, what are you talking about? Being a United States senator, who wouldn't want to do that job? And I still think it's one of the neatest jobs around, certainly. Um, but Lori understood something that was burning inside of me that um, I'm not sure I fully understood at that moment, which is, you know, while I do want to do public service, my desire is to see real, direct, impactful Yeah, you change. said that before in yeah. your decision to run for and, county commissioner. And so I wrestled with it for a few more days um, and finally called Senator Schumer and Senator Reed back and said, you know, I'm going to run for attorney general instead of United States Senate. I realize most of the sort of political pundits are going to think I'm crazy, um, but I really want to get things done. I really think this is, uh, this is the most impactful job in government today, being an attorney general. And Schumer told me, um, oh, you're one of those guys who, you know, you want people to listen to you. You want to do stuff. I said, yeah, exactly. That's what I want to do. And so it was a difficult decision, but it was the right decision. I've never looked back. And while I have great respect for a number of United States senators who do really important work in that role, 
Uh, I think being an attorney general is the most impactful job in government today, especially uh, given who the occupant of the White House is and our ability to uphold the rule of law to protect our citizens and and do some real good for them. Yeah, I, it, the attorneys general are playing a a big role. It, it's also true that in the uh, during the Obama administration, Republican attorneys general sort of organized uh, and became kind of the opposition to. Uh, to him, Do, t- describe the role that you think that attorneys general are playing now in uh, relationship to Trump and the administration and and the Justice Department. I do believe that the rule of law is under attack nearly every day by this White House. Um, and by the way, separately, I think there are a lot of good people in the Department of Justice who are just as concerned about this uh, as I am. Folks who we work with every day, who I have great respect for, but the rule of law is under attack. And I think it takes people like me and other attorneys general to stand up and fight to protect that. And understand, David, this isn't just a reaction to differing from Donald Trump or having different views or uh, being from different parties. If I sued Donald Trump every time I disagreed with one of his policies or disagreed with something he said, I'd have sued him probably thousands of times. Instead, I've sued him just over a dozen times. And I would point out that I've won each and every time. Describe the suits that you brought. Well, we, we brought a suit early on on the first travel ban where mm-hmm. what the president was doing was not only un-American, was unlawful. Um, and that was in my first week in office. Just last week, uh, we filed a suit against uh, the president's policy to take away women's access to contraception, something you and President Obama fought so hard for to have incorporated in the Affordable Care Act. And while the president doesn't like the Affordable Care Act, while the president has tried to change it, it is the law of the land, and he can't simply ignore the law. And so we filed a suit in federal court. We won. And not only did we protect access to contraception for women in Pennsylvania, but access for women all across the country. We've had other wins where the president has Let decided, me interrupt you for a second and just course. ask you, do you have concerns about the current Supreme Court now that Justice Kavanaugh has— uh, has replaced Justice Kennedy in terms of ultimately prevailing on some of these questions? So it's interesting. I gave a a speech out at the Aspen Institute Ideas Festival about the issue of federalism and how even as a progressive Democratic attorney general, uh, I believe in states' rights, notwithstanding the, the horrible history those words have. I do believe that a strict adherence to the rule of law in states allows us to be a sword to advance the rights of the individuals within our respective states and a shield to protect them from unwarranted federal overreach. And what I rely on for so many of the the, the findings and the holdings in history are conservative opinions written by guys like Scalia, because a strict adherence to the rule of law that, again, guys like Scalia have, have espoused over time we'll find that what President Trump is doing, whether on the environment, whether on individual rights, is outside the bounds of the law. And so my answer to your question is, David, if these conservative justices are in fact conservative, are in fact going to strictly read the Constitution and follow the law, they will have no choice but to rule against President Trump on a number of these fronts, on some of the suits we filed on rights, on the environment, and and others. And so I'm actually cautiously optimistic. I know it's a little crazy for a progressive Democrat like me to be quoting Scalia, but at the end of the day, if they adhere to stare decisis, if they follow those principles, you will see that these conservative justices at the end of the day will stop President Trump from doing some of the unlawful things that he's trying to do. You walked into the office and one of the first things you were handed was uh, an account of these this secret grand jury that was going on looking into uh, the abuse of children uh, within the church. Um, talk about that. You, you, I know you were active on the issue uh, in the legislature, yeah. so it wasn't a completely new issue to you. You've talked about uh, your own personal history with your dad and mm-hmm. going and watching him testify and so on. Uh, what did you confront when you walked into your office and saw what was unfolding before you? 
In my first week in office, uh, I was briefed on our outstanding grand jury investigations, which, of course, by law are secret, so I would have had no way of knowing what was going on. I learned that it was in its very, very, very early stages. Uh, you know, a handful of people in our office were working on a case involving um, the abuse of children by clergy. And I had the opportunity to either continue the investigation or sort of move in another direction. And not only did I think we ought to continue it, I wanted to put the full force of my office behind it. Uh, at its peak, we went from you know two or three people working on the case to 150 people working on this case just in my office. And it How was many people do you have in your office? Uh, a little over 900. Mm-hmm. So it's a significant part of our, uh, of our staff, of our investigators, and of our attorneys. I just thought it was so important. I think it is so important, period, to protect children. But in this case where you had, um, you know, priests who were weaponizing their faith and using it as a tool to abuse children, the grand jury ultimately found thousands of children who were abused by 301 predator priests and a systematic cover-up by church leaders uh, that stretched all the way to the Vatican. It was something that we simply couldn't walk away from, but instead were, had to did walk you find, were, were you Were you shocked by the scope of it? Uh, when you came to office, was it already apparent no, the magnitude of not what you were all. looking at? Not at all. In fact, it became apparent in like a lot of different stages. Uh, we had no idea early on the, the scope. I mean, this ultimately was probably the largest scope in the in the history of you know this country, at least um, maybe throughout the world in terms of what we unearthed in Pennsylvania. So we had no idea. It wasn't uh, probably until about a, a year or so later that it all became clear that what we were about to unearth was was really extraordinary and you know the church fought us every step of the way um under seal they went to court to try to stop our investigation when they failed at that they tried to stop our ability to release a report and when they failed at that um they've pushed back on you know on on our findings um our findings though are based on the church's own secret archives you know their yeah, own records talk a little bit about that uh, and how you did you know that such an archives existed when you began your investigation? No, but when um, our investigators went and took, discovered the archives and, and took them out. How did they discover pages, We learned through the course of the investigation that um, the church under canon law was required to keep records uh, of, you know, abuse and other sort of, you know, quote unquote personnel matters. And um, once we discovered that those records existed and that they were literally under lock and key controlled by the bishop in the individual diocese, uh, we thought it was critically important to get our hands on those documents and and to be able to comb through them. And those documents, combined with the witness testimony in our grand jury, ultimately made up uh, this you know earth-shattering report that we released in August. The report, it, we, we were speaking earlier, there was a, a critical article written by... Uh, uh, a, um, a longtime religion writer mm-hmm. in uh, Commonweal. Uh, and one of the criticisms was that of those uh, 301 cases you documented, that m- many of them were long in the past. That, um, as you have said, there are only two that actually were still subject to the statute of limitations. Uh, and his argument was that the church has actually, since 2002, when the whole spotlight uh, scandal erupted and the church uh, promulgated um, new, uh, uh, new guidelines and so on, that things have changed. Um, is, that, is that a fair criticism, and is it, is it true? I haven't read that report that you're citing, but based on... You know, your accounting of it and the other accounts I've heard of it, it is simply not true. It is demonstrably false, and it is it is demonstrated to be false by the church's own secret archives, by the witness testimony. Do you have, do you have in your archives evidence, in those archives, were there evidence that this is ongoing? And if, if that's the case, how come you haven't been able to bring any actions other than the two that you've taken? Well, we identified 301 predator priests because of our weak statute of limitations laws in Pennsylvania. How long? What is the statute? We could only charge two. It changed over time, um, but 
for a period of time, it was literally two years. Then it was changed to two years after your 18th birthday. It is since it has since gone past that. We want to eliminate the criminal statute of limitations as they've done in 39 other states. But let me get directly to the heart of your question. Um, in addition to the abuse that was uncovered, there was a systematic cover-up. And understand that people who participated in that in that cover-up, documented in the church's own records and confirmed in the grand jury, they are still in positions of power. One of them is Cardinal Whirl in mm-hmm. Washington, D.C. There are bishops in Pennsylvania who are named in the report because of their conduct in enabling the cover-up who are still in positions of power. So for someone to come along and say that, ah, oh, that's, that's ancient history, two responses. One, the leadership still is represented by people who are part of the cover-up. And two, David, I don't think we should treat child rape in 1979 any different than without, child without rape question, in 2019. I, I, absolutely. And and you're right about the cover-up. But, you know, a young man, I thought, asked a very, uh, a very uh, trenchant question when we were uh, at this event that you held here today with Lisa Madigan, the former attorney general of Illinois, who's also been active uh, on this issue. And he said, uh, people want to know... Um, if their children are safe. And so it is relevant if there has been there have been changes that could give people some confidence that uh, that their children are, are safe. Here's what I can say, and of course <clears throat> I'm limited in in some of the things I can talk about publicly. Since we released the grand jury report in August my office has received nearly 1,500 calls to our clergy abuse hotline. Many of those calls represent new information that either we or some other law enforcement agency are investigating. Since our report was released, 14 state attorneys general have opened up investigations, including Lisa Madigan, now Kwame Raoul here in Illinois. The federal government has opened up an inquiry. Just last week in New Jersey, a predator priest was charged. For someone to think that you know this is ancient history and there's nothing current, I think is a false conclusion for people to reach. The the Pope has called, car, I guess, the cardinals together to talk about this. Uh, bishops and bishops cardinals and, cardinals, and archbishops. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what what do you expect to happen there, and uh, how how uh, frank a reckoning do you anticipate? I don't know that it's my place to ever. Uh, call on the Pope to do something or, or to say I'm just what asking you based do. on but what you've seen and heard from him. Here's what I know, that the church has enough information available to it from our report in Pennsylvania, from other similar reports that have come out. The church has enough direct information from victims who have come forward to know that this is a serious systemic problem that is not limited to Pennsylvania but is all across this country and presumably across the world. That's number one. Number two, the church knows that the reforms they put in place back in 2002 are simply not enough. The Pope has acknowledged uh, the horrors that we unearthed and has stated that real serious change must come. I'm paraphrasing. Those are not his, his precise words. What I also know from going through this process is that the church simply cannot police itself. And so I believe what has to happen is, you know, for all of the church leadership to recognize, as the Pope has, these horrors that have occurred, that there was a systematic cover-up, that there was widespread abuse, and invite secular authorities in to be a part of the solution together with the church. That's what I hope comes from uh, this large meeting uh, coming up here in a couple of weeks. What about... Uh you, you made a point earlier that many of the people or some of the people who were responsible for covering up these uh, assaults and this abuse are still in positions of power, including Cardinal World. What, 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 what do you think the Pope might or should do about that? Well, it's not my place to tell the Pope what personnel decisions he should make, but I can tell you that no one would ever be working for me if they were involved in a cover-up. Uh, of this magnitude. Um, the idea that some of these folks can continue in positions of, of leadership is is shocking to me. And by the way, shocking to many parishioners that I hear from uh, in Pennsylvania and across the country, parishioners who are demanding 
real change. Um, survivors who are for the first time being heard and being listened to. David, I have to tell you, I mean, one of the most powerful parts of this whole experience has been getting to know these survivors. Guys like Bob in Bethlehem who are 83 years old who carried around this secret of abuse for over 60 years. He was raped when he was, you know, 12, 13 years old and, and, you know, lived a long life of marriage to a woman, never told her about the abuse. And as a result of the abuse could never hug his child. Um, you know, people who have lost their children to suicide because they were abused uh, and couldn't cope with the abuse and turned to drugs and alcohol. Uh, a woman named Carolyn Fortney, who I've had the honor of getting to know, I've had the honor of getting to know so many of these survivors, who was 18 months old when she was first sexually abused uh, by her priest. These are hard things to hear, but you know it is important that the survivors' stories be told so that not only can the public know about this, but hopefully the church can for the first time understand that their job is not just to protect the powerful institution, but to look out for the people that they are supposed to be protecting and helping. People like Carolyn, people like Bob, people like these folks I've gotten to know along the way. It breaks my heart that they have prioritized the reputation of their institution over the needs of these children. And I firmly believe that there is a reckoning going on in this country right now where we have to stand up and say that we're going to put people before powerful institutions, that we are not going to let, whether it's the church or some university or Hollywood or politics or business community, ever put their particular interests above the needs of those that they are supposed to represent and care for. And I think this is one piece of that broader discussion. These stories that you uh, shared uh, are appalling and disgusting and unimaginable. Some of them, as you say, go back 60 years. And I'm I'm curious, how do you, as an investigator, and I'm not in any way questioning their personal testimony, but how do you verify uh, these things all these years later? We verified it in basically two different ways. Number one, using the church's own records. Because understand, after the abuse occurred and someone would show up and tell the priest or tell the bishop what happened— they would write it all down, and then they would lock it up in the secret archive, and they would lie to law enforcement, they would lie to parishioners, they'd lie to the media and those inquiring, uh, or they would hide it. And they did it for two very simple reasons. Number one, to protect the reputation of the church, and number two, to drag this out long enough that it would get outside the scope of the statute of limitations and that no one could then be charged with a crime, either the crime of the abuse or the crime related to the cover-up. And so, you know, it is it is critically important that these truths be shared, uh, and they are truths, and they're documented in the church's record and with the direct witness testimony before our grand jury that substantiated these, uh, you know, these horrors. I want to ask you about another issue that you you raised earlier that really has ripped uh, across wide swaths of the country, and that's the opioid. Uh, crisis. There, there's been reporting recently about Purdue Pharma and the uh, strategy that they use to um, promote uh, the opioids, promote use of the opioids, and then actually profit over the uh, Narcan, is that what it's called? The, Narcan. Narcan, the, uh, the remedy uh, for overdoses from... Um, from uh, OxyContin, what is the, what is the, um, and this is a suit that's being pursued by the Attorney General of Massachusetts, Maura Healy, um, but you obviously have a big interest in all of this. How complicit or how responsible is the pharmaceutical industry uh, for this crisis? The only thing I can really say in this setting at this time is that uh, Pennsylvania is one of four states leading a 41-state, multi-state investigation into the pharmaceutical industry, including Purdue Pharma, for their role in the heroin and fentanyl and opioid crisis. I believe that these pharmaceutical products are the jet fuel to this crisis. Four out of every five heroin users start their path to addiction by abusing a prescription drug. 
four out of every five, 80% of them. And 70% of it, get it from a friend or relative or what's laying around in a medicine cabinet. And a lot of people don't understand, okay, well, if you're using these opioids, how do you get to heroin? Well, you get a lot of the same feelings from taking one of the, the pills as you do from taking heroin or fentanyl. And if you go try to buy a, a you know a prescription drug on the street, you're spending 40 or 50 bucks for the pills as opposed to five bucks for a bag of heroin or sometimes even less. It's very, very easy to make that path, make that, mm-hmm. that jump, if you will, from these pharmaceutical products to heroin. There is a direct link. And I believe that just as hard as we have to go out and arrest these dealers and just as hard as we have to go out and treat those who are in need of treatment, because I do believe drug addiction is a disease, not a crime, we have to pursue these pharmaceutical companies just as aggressively. Massachusetts has opted to file a suit. We have opted to have a multi-state investigation into the pharmaceutical manufacturers and distributors. And it is my hope that we will be able to recover not only for the people who have been harmed, but the states across our country who have just been ravaged uh, by this crisis. You know, in, in Pennsylvania, we lose 15 people every single day due to heroin, fentanyl, and opioids. We cannot tolerate that as a society. And the pharmaceutical companies play a large role in this crisis. And how much it, that money that is recovered, would would that be dedicated to um, recovery programs and to rehabilitation? It would be my hope that nearly 100 cents on the dollar would go into treatment and assistance for people who are in need, and the rest should be used by state, cities, counties, who have had to shoulder the the fiscal burden of dealing with this uh, crisis, whether it's through their drug and alcohol uh, treatment centers, child advocacy centers, just simply the ambulance rides back and forth for people who need to get to the ER. There's certain costs associated with this that need to be recovered, as well as, most importantly, helping people get the treatment that they When need. do you expect this investigation to come to fruition? I wish I could comment on that in this setting. I, I can't. I can tell Let's you go that, next door. And- I can tell you that we're making <laughs> some progress, and we're going to hold these companies accountable. All right. Well, before we go, I, you're, you're a shrewd political guy, in addition to being a, a, a fine public servant. So I, I'm going to ask you to put your hat back on. You... you um, you have met and know a bunch of these people who are running for president on the Democratic side. Um, are, are you supporting any of them yet? I know Kamala Harris was a colleague of yours as, a, as an attorney general. Uh, yep. Go ahead. No, I've, I've known Kamala for you know over a dozen years. I, I think so well of her. I think she's off to a, a great start. Um, I could tell you in 2007, I was the first elected official to endorse then I Senator Obama. That, yes. You do. And, um, and so I'm not afraid to step out early when I see someone who I think is the change agent that we need. And so I'm taking the time to get to know these candidates. They've been calling, which I appreciate. And I tell them all something very, very similar, which is um, in places like Pennsylvania, which obviously I know best, but you know, places like Wisconsin, Michigan, I mean, remember our, our entire presidential election came down to about 90,000 votes in in those three three states. states. Um, You have to be willing to go and listen in these communities where Democrats have historically ignored. You've got to show respect to people and you've got to have answers uh, to the very real economic challenges that they face. And so I'm looking for a candidate who's going to be willing to commit themselves to doing that hard work. It's not enough just to be against Trump. I don't think that this is an election that's going to be about who can run this far left or that far left. This isn't so much about left, right. This is about who's going to demonstrate an ability to listen, show compassion in their heart, uh, and be able to lead our party forward. And I intend to play a role in in making sure that that person is successful in Pennsylvania. I, I presume that you can't share with me in this setting who that person is in your mind right now. But uh, uh, I, what about Pennsylvania itself? The, as you point out, that was a huge piece of the puzzle for uh, Donald Trump in 2016. Um, Democrats did well in 2018 in Pennsylvania, although there were congressional seats that were thought to be in jeopardy for Republicans that weren't uh, won. What is your level of confidence that a Democrat will win Pennsylvania in 2020? Well, right now my confidence level is high, but... Uh, but as Joe Biden famously said, um, you know, compare me to the alternative, not the almighty. Right. right now, Donald Trump's being compared to the almighty, if you will. Uh, and in that comparison, 
Uh, he has you know, lost the Philadelphia suburbs, which is a really important swing part of, of our Commonwealth. Um, it is, I think, impossible to win the Commonwealth without winning the suburbs. And Trump actually performed reasonably well in the suburbs. He's lost a lot uh, right now. So we need a candidate who can appeal to the suburbs, who can obviously appeal to our base in places like Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, but can go back to places like Scranton and Erie and Johnstown and you know Center County where State College is and speak to those communities and let them know that, that they care as well. Right now, my money is on Democratic nominee, looking at it you know, as dispassionately as I can. Certainly, I'll be rooting for and working for the Democrat. Um, I think structurally speaking, Pennsylvania is moving back to where uh, it was as a state that elected Barack Obama twice. But our nominee is going to have to do some real work in order to make sure that that sticks. You know, I, I remember vividly, we were talking about this before, Barack Obama, when he came to Pennsylvania, didn't just go to Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. He went to places like Beaver County. He went to Scranton. He went to Wilkes-Barre. He went to these communities that oftentimes don't get to see politicians running for national office. He showed respect to those communities, and we need to make sure we get back to that in this cycle. Well, Josh Shapiro, one thing I'm pretty certain of is that you're going to log a lot of miles between now and 2020 in the state of Pennsylvania if past is prologue and and be uh, knocking on a lot of doors. So um, thank you for being here. Thanks for being at the Institute of Politics. Look forward to a continuing conversation. Me as well, David. It's an honor to be on your pod. Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit axefilespodcast.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.